There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Ray, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Healers are expected to heal, always. Patients and their families have expectations of being healed, always. Expectations. What if the healer is depleted, emotionally, physically, burnt out, incapable of giving what is expected, compassion as part of the healing? Who heals the healer and what happens to the patient? Serious questions on today's episode entitled Burnout and Compassion Fatigue, Who Heals the Healer? And today we are joined by Elmarie Duplessis and Professor Stoffel Krobler. Elmarie is a clinical psychologist based in Durbanville, north of Cape Town, and the author of an article uh, for South African Psychiatry that dealt with compassion fatigue published in August 2021. Stoffel is a psychiatrist based at Elizabeth Donkin Hospital in what used to be called Port Elizabeth but is now Quebecha. And he is an associate professor at Walter Sisulu University and a research associate at Nelson Mandela University. Also the author, together with uh, Tejil Mora, of an article back in August 2019 for South African Psychiatry on burnout and psychiatry. Elmarie and Stoffel, welcome and thanks for taking the time to join us for this episode of Beyond Madness. Stoffel, I'm going to start with Thank you, you because… Yeah. Great, welcome. So I'm, I'm going to start with you, Stoffel, because it seems to me… With reference to either of the uh, aforementioned articles, that compassion fatigue is a consequence of burnout. I, I'm, I might be wrong, and, and obviously we can discuss that. But uh, just for context, it's been documented that four in ten physicians in the United States report at least one symptom of burnout. That in the UK, a third of trainee doctors report experiencing burnout to a high or very high degree whilst a review of 43 studies of burnout in low- and middle-income countries noted that the overall single-point prevalence ranged from 2.5 to 87.9%. Now, in the aforementioned uh, 2019 article, you stated that burnout had become a buzzword, and, and, and here we are in 2022 with all that has happened since. And so I yeah. would imagine that its use has probably become even more widespread and uh, and topical. So let's start out by defining burnout. What is burnout? Thanks, Christopher. Thanks for the invitation as well. Um, yeah, I, actually, when you when you started with the intro, I my thoughts went back to why this became an interest of mine. But firstly, before, because I probably had burnout a number of times myself. Right. But um, it was a uh, a remark by a GP uh, when I was giving a an educational talk on something completely different, uh, I think, in Jeffrey's Bay. And they, the, the person said something to the effect that burnout is something that we live with. Now, right. again, statistics in South Africa, I've, I've recently looked at the statistics, and different studies um, would give you uh, statistics of between 69% up to 100% depending on the setting where uh, the doctor works in South Africa. So for, for me, I'm starting to think it's in South Africa. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're going to So hold to on Africa. a sec. I mean, basically one is almost saying it's endemic. I mean, it's Pretty just, much. it's just, it's just part of the, it's just part of the uh, professional milieu that there's almost a, I mean, if you look at those kind of statistics, you're kind of saying up to a hundred percent. That means everybody in that sample, depending, of course, on how you measure, defined, and there's all those methodological issues. But certainly that's a, that's a significant, I mean, you know, a hundred percent is a hundred percent. That's, that's, that's concerning. <laughs> that's very concerning. This was a Western Cape study. Right. Uh, and and and, I, and it was a small study, uh, granted. Right. And I think it, it's very much dependent on on the um, the environment in which a person works. Works, and like right. you said, I think COVID came and, and just exacerbated a lot of absolutely of this. So, yeah. So, what is it? So, when this GP asked the question, I thought I haven't looked at this in a while. So, let me go and look again. And there are three elements: it's the energy, right. um, then. Kind of a distance, uh, and I would like to use the word detachment, a detachment mm. from your work, right. and then lastly, efficacy or um, uh, 
sort of a feeling that you, you you're starting to doubt your your own effectiveness effectiveness in a job and i'm i'm going to read what christina maslach said specifically and i like i like this uh, now, maslach said, is maslach is very important anybody who mm. studies burnout has to know about maslach and 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 the maslach uh, uh, burnout inventory is like the standard for measuring burnout in all of the studies so a very important person you're about to quote okay yes yeah and she she puts it very well she says it's that point at which important meaningful and challenging work becomes unpleasant, unfulfilling, and meaningless. Energy turns into to exhaustion. Involvement becomes cynicism, and efficacy is replaced by ineffectiveness. And I think that yes. basically summarizes it. I mean, those are the three key elements and the three key consequences. And obviously, you know, if you're exhausted, cynical, and ineffective, we're going to come to something that I'm going to bring in towards the end, which deals with the Health Professionals Council of South Africa – Definition of impairment, and now we're starting to move into that kind of territory if one has all of those features in terms of the ability to actually practice your profession as a professional and deliver as required by yourself as a professional and as expected by by patients. So, I mean, those are the sort of key key elements which would – potentially designate you as burnt out if you experience those. But the question is, what is the duration? I mean, I, I could say to you on a particular day, I feel exhausted. I've had enough of my patients. Um, I don't feel that I really delivered a good service today. That's today. Does that mean I'm burnt out or is that just in a moment of how I'm feeling versus an extended period? So, you know, for, 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 and we'll come to depression. I mean, there is a kind of a time period where you say, well, it's got to be for a period of two weeks minimum, etc. With burnout, how does that work? Is there a duration? I actually don't know, Christopher. I, I've never seen a specific duration for that. Um, I would imagine it's, it's a prevailing feeling that, that, mm. that kind of sticks with you. It comes and sits with you and… Well, let me ask. Yes, Elmery. Let me ask Elmery because before Elmery answers, it was as you were talking, I suddenly thought to myself, "Hang on a sec. Are we dealing with a day, a week, a month, a year? What are we dealing with, Elmery?" Yeah, just uh, yeah. Thanks again for being here and for the invitation, Um, Christopher. You refer to the Maslach burnout inventory, and I think the the intro to it before you start answering the questions actually say within the last month. Uh Aha. How many of these? symptoms that you experience right and to what so that's, degree so that's very helpful because you see i think one of the issues is that and we'll obviously touch on that in more detail but burnout is not a diagnosis per se it's almost like a description of uh, 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 a feeling an experience behavior it's, the, it's it's kind of where i'm at in terms of, 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 of my practice. And so I think that at least putting a duration on it gives one a sense of, you know, this needs to be something that's persistent and consistent in terms of its experience. Because otherwise, you know, after one day or one week, we might be calling ourselves something that we aren't. We might be saying we're burnt out and we're not. So I think, Elmarie, that's actually very important. And so it's interesting that that's in the, the inventory but the problem being that although these are the recognized features of this condition, let's call it, or state, um, there's no there's no hard and fast rule. So you know, in the last month, okay, I think that gives us some kind of answer to my to my question. So carrying on, Stoffel. So we've got these three key elements. We've got a way of of measuring them. Formally, for the purposes of of research or or just self analysis actually and, and 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 I suppose one has to be a little bit careful with that because it is quite subjective, but still it's 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 your experience. The reality is that the psychiatric diagnostic um, formulations do not include um, burnout per se. I mean, certainly the American Psychiatric Association's DSM five Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders doesn't mention it at all. There's no mention of it. Once we get into the World Health Organization's international classification of diseases, a little bit different. There's version 10, 11 is coming. Stoffel, do you want to comment? And maybe, Elmarie, you can also jump in. Yeah, sure. So, so I think the closest DSM comes to uh, is calling it occupational problems, which is um, a very okay. wide uh, 
term to use and it, it encompasses, I think, quite a, a number of occupational uh, issues. Yes. So the World Health Organization in the, the ICD-10 called it a problem related to life management difficulty. And then they came out, I think, in 2019 um, and called it an occupational phenomenon. And there was a big frenzy in the media because everybody thought it's now a diagnosis. And right. the whole medicalization is quite uh, controversial um, regarding burnout, whether it should be or should not be in this, I suppose, um, arguments uh, for, for, for either side. Um, but I think calling it an occupational phenomenon connects it specifically to a job, to, to your job. Right. And, and I think that's a, a step in the right direction. And it's specifically, um, or it started out, um, Herbert Freudenberger, I think his research started out um, on the, the high-touch professions, the, 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 the professions where where there's, uh, we have to invest emotionally in um, in other people. Um, so the people-orientated type of professions. So that's a real issue because obviously the mental health professions, uh, all medical professions actually are people-orientated. That's 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 our business. Human resources, I would imagine, in uh, in organisations, and of course um, education was another one which which they mentioned. Um, just a, a question. I mean, obviously, they're using these terms, occupational phenomenon, which, you know, emanated out of problem related to life management difficulty. But it seems to me there's no specific mention of the word or the phrase burnout. It's kind of implied that you could categorize somebody with burnout according to this diagnosis. So, in other words, you could receive a, a, a diagnosis with a diagnostic code but it doesn't actually say burnout. It's got this kind of generic mm-hmm. overall. Elmarie Stoffel? Yeah, no, definitely. If I there, there's no ICD-10 code that I or, or that I can bill, yes, uh, you know, to book someone off for burnout. But but certainly there might be elements of um, a, a major depressive episode, some some anxiety, some post-traumatic stress can all be part of that picture. Um, though, though vague, um, just maybe back to the previous point in, yes. in terms of burnout being defined or specifically in the ICD-11 um, as yes. an occupational phenomena, I think uh, it's also a term that, that people use very, very loosely. Yes. Um, oh, I'm, I'm so burned out. What, what I often tell people is I can only burn out if I was a light in the first place. Okay. So <laughs> that so makes sense. Yeah. So, so, so to say that that the, the people that are um, not committed to their work, that are not passionate about helping, that um, are there to to get their salary at the end of the mm. month, will seldom be susceptible. Right. Um, but it's those individuals that are really committed and and want to make a difference. That. So, yeah. So that's a. So I mean. So, so that's a very interesting point, because you could meet the criteria. For burnout, without actually being burnt out, exactly. I could be cynical, detached, and disinterested. So technically, I could almost squeeze into the burnout category, but I'm just not interested. It's as simple as that. A job is just a job. I check in, I check out, do what I have to do, and I don't think twice about it. And I'm not that committed. I'm not that interested in career. I just need a salary. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's very important is to capture what seems to me the emotional component because you know you've 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 alluded to depression and i think that i'd wanted to discuss that a bit later but i think it's opportune to to jump in now because it seems to me that if you so you see a patient they come to you with features of burnout they may have some depressive symptoms so technically you could move towards a diagnosis of major depression but now you're moving into making a very specific diagnosis with implications from a coding point of view, from a history point of view, and you don't necessarily want to go there, but in order for purposes of a diagnostic code and you want to get a little bit more specific, then if you can't make the burnout diagnosis, you go the major depression route. And I'm wondering to what extent that's that's okay, whether we should be doing that. But I think what's very important is to make the distinction between burnout and depression. And I'm going to ask you, Stoffel, just specifically to look at that because you have alluded to that in your in your article, and I think it's very important to make that distinction. Yes. Um, 
I, I watched a um, TikTok by Christina Maslach actually um, oh, a couple okay. of months ago on 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 this partic- uh, particular aspect, and I think she was asked by uh, one of the Scandinavian countries, um, the the government, to to come and look at um, the fact that so many of their people are being diagnosed with depression, and they asked, "Is it burnout?" And she said, "Well, the, that was probably the, the precursor to." Um, to the, okay. the, the depressive episodes, and and then she highlighted all the the different aspects of work that that they can look at. And fairness was actually one of the things that she she mentioned very specifically in this TED talk. But I do think one one needs to to, to make the distinction between when it is burnout and uh, um, and the, it's a kind of an attitude towards the job, and when a person starts fulfilling the criteria for a, for a depressive episode, right. and Something that uh, I think people don't necessarily uh, focus on is um, anxiety disorders as well. So, so that there might have been a, an undiagnosed generalized anxiety disorder and um, perfectionistic traits, a bit of right. sense of compulsive personality, which will burn you out. Which, which will burn you will out. Burn you out. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote an article, um, I, I think a year ago, um, entitled "Burnout: Is it me or is it them?" And it alludes right. to what Elmer said. You know. Is it the work or is it my personality that uh, caused me to burn out? Well, I think those are very important elements that probably contribute because I've, I've got no doubt that somebody who is more perfectionistic is going to burn out at some point because obviously the world is imperfect, outcomes are imperfect, you cannot be perfect all the time, every day. And so I think that the perfectionistic individual puts a lot of pressure on themselves. That is not necessarily system related. It's very much about the individual. But just coming back to the distinction between burnout and 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 depression. Obviously depression's got very specific diagnostic criteria, but I think with burnout it's specifically linked to the work environment. Yeah. And I think that's very important. And so it's, it's, it's kind of situation specific, job related, whereas depression is more general and it's kind of context free. So would you agree with that, Stoffel? And then Elmarie, you might want to comment. Yes, absolutely. And Christina Maslach also calls it occupational specific dysphoria. Right. Uh, which very specifically connects it to a, a job, whereas depression can uh, um, arise in any circumstances. So as we, yeah. But obviously, Elmarie, they are they are linked because people who might come and see you, who you would say, well, you 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 sound like you're burnt out, but they've got some depressive features. Mm-hmm. So the question is, and and I think we we touched on that. What is the link between the two? One mustn't confuse them. One mustn't say burnout, depression, same thing, because they're not. But the link is there. So Elmarie, how would you see that? Now, my understanding of it, Christopher, is that if the mood-related symptoms that I'm experiencing is linked to my work environment, either right. I'm I don't have I have a lack of resources, there's some managerial challenges, there's uh, unclear roles, there are unrealistic expectations, and I constantly feel like I'm putting in uh, from my side everything I've got, and yet I I'm not receiving recognition or that could lead, it's almost a sense of, of loss of my efficacy yes. as well as then, then feeling like I, I start having less empathy for the people that I might be serving. I'm thinking particularly if I'm in a helping health line profession. And those, those experiences, if they persist, over a long period of time, ultimately it can lead. So for me, as you said a bit earlier, Christopher, uh, Christopher um, is that um, burnout is is a precursor for um, depression. possible depression. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, it's 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 a potential risk factor. Yeah. So if you don't address the 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 issue, it may progress to something more. And just to be clear, Stoffel is short for Christoffel. And I'm Christopher, and so <laughs> Elmarie didn't. Elmarie didn't suddenly refer to me as Christoffel, although sometimes <laughs> I have been referred to as Christoffel and Stoffel. So I've got no problem with that. But we just need to make clear who's who. So I just wanted to get back to some of the the key issues because I think that we are talking very much about the individual, but I think we need to look at the organisation. And I think we need to look at the organizational environment in terms of demand and resources. So, Stoffel, maybe you want to comment on, 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 on that. So, 
what they say about burnout is that um, the the organizational environment in terms of the high demand and low resources obviously creates a perfect situation for burnout right. to occur within. But there are specific organizational risk factors, and that is workload. Yeah. Um, that is how much you have to do, and um, which you frequently have no control over. And then control. How much autonomy do you have to decide how you do what you do? Um, and then the two that when I engage with managers, I highlight, because they're so kind of easy, in a sense, to, to change, is um, reward and community. We mm. go to work for our work community, as somebody at, at my work referred to it as my work family. Yes. We go there because it gives us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, and and if you enjoy the, the working with the people around you, it actually is a protective factor, I, I think, against burnout. But if that is not there, if there's a hostile work environment with very little psychological safety, um, you're going to, to, to be prone to burnout. And that's one thing that a manager can change, is the work environment, the psychological mm-hmm. safety. And the other one is simple, it's reward. It is um, thanking pe- people for, for a job well done. Because if you don't do that, and it's not always in monetary sense, if you don't do that, you actually devalue the work and the the worker. And those are two easy things that any manager, I think, can, if they put their mind to it, can change. And then the last… I just just want to jump in there because, I mean, thinking about community takes me back to the surgical pit at Chris Harney Baragwanath Academic Hospital, was Barra in those days, and Saturday night was chaos… But what got us through each Saturday night was the team. And I think that ability to to engage, to support, and to laugh at times at our own struggles and to share humor, to share food. Because actually what used to happen was at midnight we used to break and we used to go for dinner at that point. And one person used to bring the food for the entire team and we'd sit down and we'd literally break bread together, catch our breath and then we'd re-enter the fray. So I think that sense of, of, of team and belonging and community is so important. But in terms of reward, I mean, it could be something as simple as I'm giving you a day off. I'm not taking it out of your leave. You've worked over and above. You've done overtime. You've pulled long shifts. You're going to get a day off. As simple as that. It's of no cost really to the company. Elmarie? Now, just to add on to what you said, Christopher, I'm, I think back to some conversations during the COVID time of people working in hospital settings in that really, really chaotic, yeah. high, high stress, low resource situation and, and sharing how valuable and how appreciative they were of something like a cupcake being presented yes. to everybody in the team. So when you say small rewards, it's that, that small gesture of yes. your effort is being recognized. And I think it's, it's, it's also got to do with leadership within the team, how you marshal the resources, how you see when somebody is maybe slipping a little bit and you're there to kind of pick them up, carry them, put them back and compensate in a way so that the team keeps moving forward. So I think that in terms of um, the team, leadership is also a very important component of that. So those are some personal observations, you know, in, 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 in difficult circumstances. And everybody came through at the end of the day. And, and, you know, I mean, those were 24 to 36 hour shifts that, that we used to work. And I don't really think that anybody ever complained or necessarily felt burnt out per se, tired. Yes. And this was for months. I mean, you would have this on a, on a recurring basis for the duration of your rotation. In, in this instance, it was surgery. So I think that there are factors that can mitigate the emergence of, of, of burnout. But there were two other things that I think do come into the organizational situation. Stoffel, and you'd spoken about fairness and values. I'm just going to, to, to switch to a different uh, network. I see my, my connection is unstable. Um, so okay. if you lose me for a moment, apologies. No problem. And we can always, I mean, this conversation, we can just edit. So it's not a, it's not a big issue. So you tell me when you are ready and then we'll. I'm back. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So we were talking about two other aspects of, of, of organizational risk factors. And, and I know that you'd mentioned, well, you hadn't mentioned specifically, but the issues of fairness and values. Do you want to elaborate on those? Yeah. Right. So f- fairness is, 
everybody wants to be treated the same. And I think we're all, as human beings, very sensitive to if you feel that somebody else is uh, um, treated differently from you. And again, it is something that managers should be aware of, just that awareness um, that should be created with them. Um, And um, one of the examples that I've come across is that the management thought they're doing an amazing thing by um, giving a monthly prize for for, for, for something well done. However, when they started uh, questioning the, the the employees, they thought the process by which this prize was chosen and this person was chosen was actually quite unfair. And, and that came as a surprise to them. So it's something that you, you need to put some thought into it. Are you treating everybody uh, with equal fairness? Okay. So that's important because at the end of the day, something that is supposed to be incentivizing becomes a disincentive because everybody gets a, a bit bitter and twisted about how the process ultimately leads to whoever is chosen and then it creates tension within the team and tension between the team management so all these interpersonal issues are actually critical uh in terms of well maybe not directly impacting on burnout but certainly contributing as one of the factors mm-hmm. so i think that the issue of fairness is 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 important in that sense and values what was what were you thinking then, there values of um your values and and the, the reasons why you you chose a s- certain job and then you right. realize but this is actually not what i i signed up for and or the, the the disconnect between the values that the organizations say they have in their vision and mission but um back at home or you know back at the ranch when it comes to the work environment is actually not what is being lived um right. and what what Maslach says is an interesting thing once you start addressing one of these factors in a uh, company, you do tend to get a domino effect and all the others start to improve, but you have to be aware of these these factors. Okay, so I mean that is the sort of global view of, 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 of organizational factors. And I think it's important that we focus on organizational factors because I think a lot of the um, – move is towards what the individual can do. But of course, the individual is within an organization. And I think one has to look at the fact that it's bi-directional, how the individual impacts the organization and and vice versa. And obviously, there are consequences. I mean, burnout has consequences in terms of the organization. So I think that, you know, there we we need to look at, at, at issues around absenteeism, etc. So maybe Stoffel, Elmarie, jump in with what, what your understanding of, of, of some of the consequences. Elmarie, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. I, I do think a, a healer or a person, let's say, in a helping profession that is burned out, has a lower ability to actually do good patient care um, and, and that they would be you know, challenges in terms of the quality of work that I provide. Yeah. Um, if you're burnt out, if you're burnt, if you're burnt out. out. Yeah, yeah, if you're burnt out. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, things like I might tend to book off more, uh, mm. book sick more, so problems with absenteeism and right. not as effective, um, not meeting deadlines. And, uh, yeah, so creating so, quite a lot of negative consequence. So productivity, is 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 not what it should be and i think that you know when we speak about work quality we're talking really ultimately about quality of care and that's got significant implications because we're talking about other human beings and who have entrusted their health to us and so you know going back to where i started out in terms of expectations there is an expectation that you'll be professionally managed, which can be something like, I took bloods, I need the blood results, I've got a result, I'll give you feedback because there are implications for management and making sure that nobody slips through the cracks and everything is done timelessly and communicated effectively and, and, and appropriately. So ultimately, it comes down to your ability to render a, a, a professional service to your patients. So we then come down to how does the patient experience this? Because I think patient satisfaction is a big issue. Stoffel, maybe you can comment, and then Elmarie. Yeah, and it, it, the research has shown that it definitely impacts on patient satisfaction. And, I mean, it's, it's uh, common sense that if your doctor or your uh, um, psychologist seems disinterested in you, as, as mm. disengaged from you, um, 
you're not going to be happy with the service. You're going to feel, but why are you not communicating? In fact, you might seem irritable um, or make cynical remarks. So I think definitely it can impact hugely on um, on patient care. And can I just come back but to, to absenteeism and yes. mention presenteeism? Um, because presenteeism right. is a lot more difficult to uh, to measure. So, and th- that's where the disengagement part comes in. You pitch up for your work and you go through the motions and you go home. Um, and you're not as effective as you actually can be. And, and I think that's something that, that, that we also need to consider is that you, you can pitch up for work, but yes. the work is not necessarily going to be done very well. Well, I think I've, 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 I've come across data recently that says presenteeism is actually uh, uh, much more costly to organizations than absenteeism. It's actually almost better that you're not there because then you kind of are accounted for and so compensated for, but that presenteeism actually has a much more profound effect on organizations than absenteeism. And I think that's a very important issue because at the end of the day, your burnt-out person who's not been diagnosed with any condition, who comes to work, may in fact be part of that group of individuals who, uh, let's say, suffer from or demonstrate this phenomenon of, 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 of presenteeism. Elmarie, your thoughts? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's a huge risk to, to organizations to have what I, as a, maybe as a manager, perceive I've got a full set, you know, team yes. that's there and they're ready for the challenge. Yet yes, I, I lose sight that some of my members are injured, so yes. to say, and therefore that's a risk for our, our full performance. So um, one of the... Yes, absolutely. And so one of the other issues for me is the, the, the contagion effect, how one burnt-out individual impacts on the others. Elmery, sorry, I, I jumped in there, but maybe you want to continue on, on that line, what the possibilities are in terms of one member of staff impacting on other members of staff and having a, a knock-on effect. Because in, from what I've seen, what happens is everybody else has to carry the can, so to speak. And then you've got the situation where you've got fewer and fewer doing more and more. And so eventually the burnout kind of spreads by virtue of having not dealt with it at source with the individual and thereby protecting the rest of the team in that sense. That just what I've observed in, 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 in the, in the, in the clinical setting. Elmarie, and then maybe Stoffel can jump in. Yes, no, absolutely. If, if I'm, I'm absent either, well, present and absent at the same yes. time, yes. Uh, or I'm actually not at work, that means my colleagues need to pick up the slack. And so that on one, one hand. The other hand is also in my conversations. If I'm, if I'm carrying a lot of burnout in the way yes. that I talk about my work, in the way that I engage, almost what I model to, to colleagues, that, that sort of rubs off. Yes. And if I'm being that cynicism that you spoke about, Stoffel. Right. Uh, yeah, so definitely contagious. Stoffel? Yeah, it's, it's, I was going to say the same thing, that the, the cynicism, if you work with a colleague that's um, constantly negative, constantly seeing the dark cloud uh, and no uh, silver lining around the cloud and re- keep reminding you of, how bad the situation is in which we're working, then it is going to impact others as well. And and so so the contagion is literally also psychological contagion uh, in as much as it's the work doesn't get done contagion as well. Do you ever see interventions? You know, we speak about interventions where like the whole family has to gather around the uh, uh, identified individual who, for example, it, it's usually within the context of substance abuse. So we're speaking about the, the, the work team as kind of like your work family. Does the family ever get together? Have you seen in, 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 in practice where they say, you know what, we've got to take this individual in hand, have a good talking to them because we care for them, not because we're necessarily hostile towards them or angry with them. We just see that there's a problem. Do you ever come across those kind of team interventions where everybody has a sit down and says, listen, you need to do something about uh, how you're feeling and how you're performing? Does that ever happen? I haven't seen that ever happen, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I have some thoughts on, on, on it that I'll share it with you now, but um, no, I, I, I think it's up to a manager frequently and yes. then it probably wouldn't be a, a group discussion. It would be a one-to-one discussion yeah. and in, in a 
environment of, of, of safety and, and confidentiality. No, no, listen, I'm, I'm sure from human resource uh, procedures, that would probably be unprocedural. And so it probably might be what's on people's minds. But yeah, I think it would probably go through the manager in terms of, listen, so-and-so, have you noticed or the manager starts to see, or the, when I say the manager, the head of the team starts to notice that there's, uh, there are issues and then they call the person in and, and, and have a private discussion. Elmarie? Yeah, no, the things that I have seen, um, Christopher, you know, say a manager picks up, there's individuals that are taking strain. So yeah. let's, let's get an outside consultant in and let's do a culture review. And then maybe it ends with a bry or we, we have some kind of team building exercise and then done. We've, so this is looked. this is corporate though, hey? This is yeah, very frequently. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I can't see it. I can't see it in the state sector. So, um, and and the feedback then from the, the the individuals that actually require attention and yes. and, and care is that that it, it's actually ineffic- inefficient. Oh, okay. So can, can I can I jump yes. in there? Yeah. Uh, there was an article that. I think it's, it was at the height of COVID, COVID written by um, Professor Amy Hotro, who's a Canadian um, pediatrician. And she, uh, I'm going to quote her. She says, focusing on burnout suggests the healthcare provider has the problem and the intervention should be at provider level. The implication is that the healthcare provider who experiences burnout are not mindful or resilient enough. And then she goes yes. on to say, no amount of baby goat yoga is going to solve the problem. <laughs> No, no, but I think that's very important. And that's why, you know, earlier I was, I was referring to the, the fact that we were looking at organizational risk factors. Because obviously, this phenomenon, whatever you want to call it or however you want to see it, occurs within a context. And the context has to be looked at in its totality in terms of the, the environment. I think sometimes what happens is a lot of people who are burnt out simply leave. They just leave the organization. Certainly I can say that in the, in the state sector, I would suspect that that often accounts for people leaving. Um, so in a sense, nothing ever changes, nothing gets addressed, and it's just a continuous and perpetual systemic issue because folk just vote with their feet. They just say, well, I can't deal with it. They kind of work out that nothing is necessarily going to change and they feel they've had enough and they and they move on, which for me is not a sign of weakness. It's more a sign of self-preservation, where you say, "I can't do this anymore, and I've, I don't want to damage myself or my relationships, family, etc." And so it's better for me just to move out of this situation. But the the issue of clinical diagnosis, you you. You touched on something earlier, Stoffel, where, where Maslach was, I think, consulting to some of the Nordic countries or the Scandinavian countries. Sweden and the Netherlands have a slightly different view to the USA. I mean, the United States, you know, there's, there's, there's no such thing, whereas Sweden and the Netherlands seem to have a slightly different approach in terms of how they understand and, and manage these kind of situations. Do you want to comment on that? I think it was actually the Swedish government for which she, she consulted, by the right. way. Right. Um, and and just a mental note, you said people vote with their um, feet. Um, maybe we should come back to this buzz, this recent buzzword of, of quietly quitting. And I, I suddenly oh. wondered where the quietly quitting, uh, where, where there's a relationship between quietly quitting and, and, and burnout. But in any case, yeah, coming back to, to Sweden, um, I think in, they called it work-related neurasthenia, and then within a couple of years, it became one of the five most uh, used diagnoses. Um, and they refer to it as a vital exhaustion. And I don't quite understand, but I think they changed the ICD criteria for, for the country and, and say, okay, well, this is, is an illness um, or however they, they, they refer to it. And in, in the Netherlands, they, they refer to it as respondentate. Um, right. Uh, I I suppose the the, the direct overstressed, overstressed, overstressed. Yeah, yeah. That's um, what I would have thought. And um, and again, they 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 estimate around four percent of healthcare workers suffering from burnout. That, this was prior to COVID, and since right. COVID, I mean, we've seen so much in the um, media uh, being written about um, about the prevalence of, of burnout, and that actually there is a crisis in Europe in terms of in a certain place in Europe in terms of healthcare workers leaving the profession. Uh, possibly due to burnout. In fact, yes, I've I've seen recent articles on that, 
and it's 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 I think specifically in Denmark, actually, um, the numbers were 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 quite alarming in terms of staff feeling that they are overworked, overburdened, and these are these are systems that are much more I would have thought responsive in terms of how they deal with their staff and how they understand um, human management in, 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 in that sense. But yes, I think it was Denmark that uh, is about to experience or is experiencing a significant loss of, 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 of health personnel as a consequence of feeling overburdened. So the point I was making was that there's a distinction between the United States and certain European countries. And I think the important implications are if there's no such condition – and there's no such acknowledgement of this phenomenon, then obviously there is no accommodation in the workplace. There is no reimbursement for, or should I say access to care because there's no such condition. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, you've got a problem, you deal with it, that's it. And either you perform or you get out. Now, obviously from a business point of view, they're looking at the bottom line and, Maybe that kind of staff turnover is acceptable, but of course there's a human cost. And I think it sounds like the Swedes and the Dutch are more sympathetic in that sense to these uh, staff members who may experience what we would call burnout, but they obviously give it a different name. But it seems to me that they're kind of recognizing it as a condition as opposed to what the formal classification systems are. Stoffel? Yes, it, it would seem that way, and, and I suppose that's one of the reasons it hasn't made it into um, the DSM, is that um, then people will have to, to start getting reimbursement for that, and I think there, there's, a, there's a, um, a reasoning around that. But, but what you're saying is very important. If it doesn't have a name, then you don't address it. It should have a name so that you can identify this person and put measures in place to, um, to, to help this person, to, to assist this person, to, to change the work environment or the workload or, um, you know, however this person can be accommodated within the work to still help them perform their duties. Yes, I think, yeah, Elmery? Yeah, no, I, I want to add to what you've said yes. before. I, I think apart from the importance of it having a name, I, I think there's, there's almost a precursor because I think, People specifically in helping professions are notoriously bad at looking out for ourselves. Yes. And, and there's almost a stigma to, to acknowledging that, that I feel overwhelmed or that I'm not coping because I am then the person that people come to for help. So, so I think there's, that, that's another sort of window into what's happening or not uh, happening. And I think specifically because as healthcare, mental healthcare professionals, psychiatrists, no doubt psychologists as well, we deal with people's emotions. So technically we're supposed to be above experiencing these things because we're supposed to be emotionally whole so as to cope with and obviously administer care to those who are battling with their emotions. So I think that issue of, 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 of stigma is very important. You know, in, in psychiatry, we talk a lot about stigma in relation to patients, but I think there's, there's a kind of a self-stigmatization in terms of oneself battling and struggling. I don't know what your experience is, Stoffel, but certainly I think it's difficult, and I agree with Elmarie there, it's difficult for mental health care professionals to come forward and say, you know what, I'm really battling. And I think that... Um, it's something which we need to address within our own uh, 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 disciplines to 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 look at that. Stoffel, your comments? I think that's why it's so important to have conversations like we're having today and and to put it out there for the public and and create uh, um, some discourse out there in the public. I we at our hospital we've uh, been getting interns for the past two years. We never used to to, to get interns, and right. so I get to speak to young doc- doctors uh, quite often and. I had a very weird remark made that with the previous group. They said to me, thank you for treating me like a human being, or mm. us like human beings. Yeah. And I was shocked. Um, and they said, so, so I have these conversations. And they said that actually there's a fair amount of junior doctors that after their internship actually take a gap year just mm. to recover from either internship or they take it after the, the comserve year. And they say, you just put your head down. And you, 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 you tell yourself there's something at the end. I, I can make it through this, this two or three years. Um, and I think it's partly stigma and self stigma and 
the, the, the fear of what it will mean to, to, to their career if they admit that they, they, they're struggling emotionally. And partly, everybody's in the same boat. And if I don't do the work, somebody else will have to do the work. And they, they, they harm themselves, I think, in the process. Yes, I think it's 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 really difficult to 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 come forward. But obviously, you know what we were saying earlier is is that it's actually a conversation between the individual and the senior to to look at how they're experiencing things and what kind of accommodation can be made, what kind of accommodation is necessary, what does the system need to do, what does the individual need to do. So I think that you know it's 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 about being able to have those conversations without fearing judgment or any negative consequence. So I think, again, we come back to something I'd, I'd, I'd mentioned earlier, which is leadership and, and, and how do you lead. Mm-hmm. You know, Just because I'm struggling doesn't mean that I'm no longer competent ultimately, but I might need something different to kind of get me through whatever I'm going through to kind of get back into where I was and, and, and to be able to continue and uh, to perform. But I wanted to touch on one of the other aspects of, of, of today which is compassion. And I know, Elmarie, you've written specifically about compassion, and I've got this kind of hierarchical uh, relationship in my head between sympathy, empathy, and compassion, but that's in my head. So <laughs> you might you might want to comment differently. But I think that you've written about compassion, and I think it's, 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 it's very important because the concept or the phenomenon of compassion fatigue is a real concern potentially as a consequence of burnout. So your your comments on compassion and compassion fatigue. Yeah, if we think about what the word compassion means, um, in, in Latin, it, it goes back to the word compati. That means to to care for, for people who suffer. Right. And um, so, so compassion or my understanding of it, if, if I have compassion for someone, it's, an empathetic, real empathetic understanding of a person's feelings accompanied by an altruistic desire to help. Yes. Those two things. And um, so certainly I need empathy in order to show compassion. Though empathy does not include that necessarily, that desire. Uh, Yes. Go ahead. No, no, I think that's important because I think the empathy is, 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 is almost the feeling uh, the, the, the understanding, the, the compassion incorporates the action. I'm going to do something for this person who I feel for. And maybe it starts with sympathy, although I was always told sympathy is just the same as saying, ah, shame. So, which doesn't really count for much. It's just a, an expression, you know, whereas we've, we've got to move into empathy and then compassion. So that's why I said for me, it was kind of on a, on a hierarchy in a, in a sense, building towards compassion, but compassion fatigue. I mean, that's a real issue where you are a, a, a healer. You're a caregiver. But you've lost compassion. And I think that's a real, uh, concern within these sort of caring professions. And obviously we're focusing on healthcare professionals and mental healthcare professionals specifically. So Elmarie, your thoughts about compassion fatigue? Yeah, I, I, I've read it to be the cost of caring right. um, for, for the emotional pain of others. And it certainly includes and could include um, aspects of burnout as well as secondary victimization or secondary traumatic stress. Yeah. Um, and the, the term is often used interchangeably, but I found a very interesting article that looks at the commonalities between mm-hmm. compassion fatigue and, and burnout. So you'll see that I think compassion fatigue incorporates um, similar commonalities or the emotional exhaustion. Yes. Uh, the reduced sense of personal accomplishment or meaning in your work, um, mental exhaustion, decreased interactions with others, so starting to isolate, uh, depersonalization, so symptoms of feeling disconnected from the real causes, and then physical exhaustion. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think it is about really I've been hearing and caring and and showing empathy for so long and I've got nothing more to give. I'm just completely overwhelmed. You know, this 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 issue of secondary traumatic stress I think is 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 under discussed within the professions actually. Because you know if you're listening to repeated stories from different individuals of trauma, 
I mean, each one of those is profound in its own way. And now, you know, one person gives you their story, the next person theirs, and you're constantly dealing with that. And so I can remember having discussions within the department about exactly that. And it's not that we were saying, ah, shame, um, because, you know, that's, that's part of what we do. That is the profession. We deal with other people's traumas. We deal with other people's difficulties and we try to help them make sense and, 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 and deal with it themselves and, and move forward. But there is a price that you pay and there is a consequence and one has to be very sensitive to that in terms of how you manage yourself and how you process. And I think that the, the word detachment is maybe too strong a word, but you need to be one step back in a sense in order to be able to render a service. And I think sometimes it's those boundary issues where we kind of get too caught up in what our patients may be saying and in terms of how it, how it impacts on us. So I think that self-awareness as a mental health care professional is actually very important. But I, I saw that there was a statistic which I took out of your article, anything from t- about 22 to 45% of healthcare workers, depending on the setting, experience compassion fatigue. And that's a significant number. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I think it's almost, as you said, right in the beginning of our conversation, Stoffel, that it's not an, an if, it's almost a when. Right. Um, if I'm truly someone that, that does care and, and have compassion for the patients that, that I see. Um, so so there's a huge responsibility to to do good self-care and do it often. You know, just on a more personal note, I know for me, if I start carrying files in my in my briefcase home of patients that I'm concerned and worried about, I know there's warning signs. Right. So because it's about that boundary that you're talking about, um, Christopher. Yes. To, to know exactly what my role is, because if yes. I'm getting completely entrenched in this patient's trauma, I'm not going to be able to help. I'm being well, almost too close. No, I think that's exactly, that's exactly right. And one should not, um, underestimate how easily one slips into that because we are caregivers. That's what we do. But I think there was something else that came out of your article and we were referring to the perfectionistic individual. And I just wanted to go through the, uh, overview of potential patient expectations and how it sets the scene for caregiver issues. So I'm just going to kind of list them. You've got to be sincerely interested, empathic, listen attentively, always available, unfailingly consistent, diagnose quickly, prescribe accurately. You've got to be the unfailing expert who secures long-term mental and overall health instantly or certainly very quickly. And I mean, when you look at that list of expectations, and I'm not saying they're unrealistic, it's just what they are. Um, there is a, there is a real, uh, burden on the caregiver to live up. And the truth is we're not perfect and we don't always get it right. And I think part of managing expectations is conversation and communication about the reality of meeting these expectations, which if we don't have those discussions become what we are burdened by because this is what we want to do for every single patient. So Elmarie, you because it came from your article and obviously you kind of put these all together. Yeah, no, I, I often tell, tell patients that, um, so you're basically looking for a magic wand. So you right. come and see me once and magically everything that's been burdening you have disappeared. So I literally, as you say, we have to have conversations. I, I would say that and acknowledge the, mm. the expectation. And yes. of course, I'm, I'm a human being. So apart from. That's the, key. Oh, mm. That's key. You're human, which means you're imperfect, which means you've got limitations, but you're going to work. You see, what I always think is that you give 100% effort. You can't always have a 100% outcome, but you certainly give 100% effort, and I'm committed to your wellness. How are we going to get there? Well, the path may not be smooth, and it may not be perfect, but we'll work towards it. And so I think that managing expectations of patients might also be – and it's not something that I've seen written about in terms of burnout – but I do think it's something that one could really think about in terms of when you train people to become specialists, how you manage patient expectations. And I think that's an important issue. Stoffel, would you want to comment on that? That, and I, I was just writing a thought down for me as well. And I, was, I was wondering about the fact that um, I think younger, if you're still 
yeah, um, early in your profession, you also have more difficulty setting boundaries, setting boundaries for your uh, for your patients, for um, your own work life balance. Um, that that aggravates or, or creates a situation where you are more prone to to burn out. Um, but yes, I I, I, um, I do think that the ability to to set boundaries is yes. extremely important. It is one of the skills that you must learn as a healthcare provider to protect yourself against burnout. And I suppose managing expectations is a kind of a boundary in itself. But there's something that I came across in your article, Elmery, that I found I hadn't really thought about, and that is compassion satisfaction. So now we're talking about, you know, the, 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 the loss of compassion, but now we get into the fact that actually there are those who have compassion satisfaction. So maybe you just want to elaborate a little bit on that as we come to the end. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, that's why a lot of people choose the profession because right. I, I have compassion, I have an ability to show empathy, and I love helping people. So, so the satisfaction that 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 I feel when a, when a patient leaves my office and say thank you, I'm doing so much better. Right. And and there are definitely um, individuals that are able to, with I presume things like. Um, you know, good boundaries and and have that sense of satisfaction. And I, I in fact, think it's almost a continuum. Yes. One, one in this having compass, compassion, satisfaction, and why I chose the profession. Mm. You know, and you stating earlier how many mental health professionals leave or leave the health setting yes. in Europe earlier in our conversation. And then to the other extreme is complete compassion fatigue. Yep. And I, I think... The reality is caring for people will cause some 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 form of stress. Yes. If I can put it like that. So I, I see it almost as it's a given. Yes. I will have caring for people, hearing people's stories, hearing being with them in their traumas, in their losses will cause me distress and, and maybe stress. Yeah. And it's about how do I balance and what is my responsibility as as a mental health professional to make sure that that I replenish and I'm able to contain and hold all of that so that I can have that satisfaction. Well, I think that my job, yeah, I think that once you begin to experience compassion, stress, that's a red flag. Absolutely. And I think part of managing that has got a lot to do with how you connect professionally with your peer group, support groups. And so I think communication comes into it, but it comes back to something fundamental, which is acknowledgement. And so I think that, you know, there's, you, you also quote, I don't know who Dr. BJ Parker is, but somewhere in your article, that name appears and it said healing is an inside job. And so I think that, you know, that is, that is important. As much as we talk about systemic issues, there is personal responsibility. And I think it's that ability to recognize I'm taking strain. What am I going to do about it? Absolutely, Christopher. And I, I, in, in writing this, writing this article, I've, I've reflected about my own training many years ago and how much emphasis or not, you know, is there put on that responsibility of yes. really needing to take good care of myself because my compassion, my empathy is the vehicle right. that's needed for change to happen and, and health to, to be reinstalled. And, and then I think it's, it's probably oversaid, but, but I think lifestyle choices as a mental health professional, that Very I need important. to walk the walk yeah. and not just talk the talk. So if exactly. I tell my patients, you need to exercise, am I doing that? Right. You need to connect with friends, am I doing that? Yes. You need to make sure that you also are part of professional bodies where there's yes. peer review, where there's support, where there's supervision. Am I doing that? Yes. So I think that's very important is that we've got to practice what we preach. And so what we come down to are issues of self-awareness, the ability ultimately to consult and share. And I think that is important actually. And it's not a sign of weakness. I always think to myself, if you're able to identify your struggle, for me, that's more of a strength because you're looking to do something about it. You're not saying, well, I'm a victim here. You're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm actually struggling and I need to share it with, with someone I can trust. And it doesn't necessarily have to be someone in the workplace, it can be a family member or a, or a friend. And then ultimately it's about action. What am I going to do? And so at the end of the day, you know, one doesn't want to get to the Health Professionals Council of South Africa definition of, 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 of impairment, 
because I, I would prefer that practitioners don't go down that route, although it is available. But at the end of the day, if you're self-aware, share, act accordingly. Hopefully one doesn't get there. And I think what we've done today is kind of just mapped out what it looks like, discussed a lot of the issues around it, and just raised awareness. And the fact is that it is an occupational hazard, so to speak, because that's the nature of the caring professions. And there may be other professions where there's a lot of human contact and, and emotion where it may be the same. So, Elmarie and Stoffel, I want to thank you for your time and sharing of your knowledge and perspectives on an issue that impacts clinicians, but it's got significant implications for patients and it represents a threat uh, to either. So, for me, in closing, what, what, what comes to mind is the, is the concept of self-preservation and the need to preserve the self in order to give to the other. And so in reconciling preservation with compassion, I started looking or trying to reconcile the two. I started looking around to see if I could find anything that speaks of the link. And sure enough, I actually found someone who wrote an article on Self-preservation and compassion. A lady called Emily. I don't know who she is. She comes from New Zealand, but she's got a website, a webpage. She's a songwriter. And uh, this is what she had to say. Self-preservation and compassion go hand in hand. Keeping ourselves happy is precisely what helps others. I think it's very possible to be aware of the feelings of the people around us, to care about them without giving too much of ourselves. It's all about finding that delicate balance between detachment and caring. And I think the key word is balance. So remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness. In proud association with Adco Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time.